Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Do you want to save money at the grocery store, eat more organic, whole foods, cultivate food security, and feel more connected to the earth? If so, then growing your own food is a no-brainer. You wouldn't believe how many people come to me claiming that they can't grow their own food. They think they don't have enough space, that they're too busy, or that they simply don't have what it takes. Perhaps you've fallen for one of these gardening myths. If you think you can't grow food, or if you think the only food that you have access to is what you buy in the grocery store, I have a life-changing webinar that you need to see. It's free and will help you unearth your inner gardener. I've helped thousands of people just like you learn to grow their own food, and I'm speaking from my own experience when I say that with the right knowledge in place, there is no such thing as a black thumb. With this webinar, you can begin making your garden dreams come true and start growing delicious, nutritious food for your family. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to IWantToGarden.com and you will receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. Remember, that's GARDEN to 44222 or IWantToGarden.com. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the grow your own food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Nancy Bailey of Honey Hill Farm to talk about her experience with raising a prolific vegetable garden in a small space. Nancy had an idyllic childhood growing up in western New York State, right next door to her grandfather who she adored. He had a small farm where he raised a few head of cattle and always had a few dozen chickens. While much of the 10 acres was devoted to raising hay and grain to feed and bed the cattle, her father and grandfather also managed a large vegetable garden and an apple orchard. The garden produced a huge bounty which her mom canned and froze, and while young, it didn't occur to Nancy to consider how special it was to be fed on free-range grass-fed beef, fresh farm eggs, and to eat organically grown fruits and vegetables year-round. Today she looks back and realizes how lucky and loved she was. 
Although she's always had a passion for ornamental horticulture, it wasn't until retirement two years ago that she got serious in raising vegetables and composting. By adding micronutrients and her own amendments, each season has yielded a more prolific harvest. Although her vegetable garden is less than 200 square feet, she reaps far more produce than she and her husband can consume. She says she raises vegetables for the joy of watching them grow as well as to consume and share them with neighbors. Welcome to the show today, Nancy. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now? Sure. I have, I've kind of, I grew up in a farming family which was, uh, which for me was eating all wonderful things and being outside and playing in the dirt and working with my grandfather and my father on, on his small farm. And uh, when I was an adult, I was working, so didn't have as much time as I'd like to be outside or in the garden. Mm-hmm. But I'm retired now, and so it's been a joy. For the last couple of years, I retired from uh, industry. I was a mechanical engineer. So the love of science and gardening kind of comes together for me, and uh, so I'm kind of curious, and I'm analytical, and, you know, I like knowing, for instance, the temperature of my compost bin and what's going on in my little biodome where I'm raising seeds, that kind of uh-huh. stuff. I'm I'm pretty obsessive about rainfall. I watch the rainfall all the time. My, my husband would say I'm obsessive. <laughs> and uh, I guess I guess kind of what what's important to me too is that I I really love to feed people and I'm a complete foodie and uh, love the concept of farm to fork which in my world here in Southern California um, is wonderful because I have opportunity to farm year round and bring mm-hmm. things in from my garden. Nice. Curiously, you have a 200 square foot garden, right? It's actually even a little bit less than that. And you call yourself a farmer. Can you tell me about that? Because that's, I, I call myself a farmer and I've got, uh, you know, maybe 4,000 square feet of food that I, you know, raise. <laughs> yeah. So tell, how did you come to that and why did you come to that? Uh, well, it, it wasn't, it wasn't until recently and I was working, I'd never been considering, I never considered myself anything but a home gardener uh-huh. until I think last fall sometime, somebody was walking by our house and the garden is up by the street and uh, they stopped and they said, do you farm year round? <clears throat> and I laughed and I said, well, yes, I guess I, guess I do. I've got a uh, summer and a winter vegetable garden and so I sort of embraced the idea that maybe I actually am farming it's it's on a very small scale cool because I that's what I tell people all the time if you what I say is if you're growing food and sharing food you can call yourself a farmer because that's what farmers do right There there you go yeah so how long have you been well this question says how long have you been farming how long have you been growing food and well farming (laughs) <laughs> you know, I, I have maybe five years ago, I started planting some vegetables, but it wasn't until I retired because I think the earlier gardens were not very successful, particularly the winter garden mm-hmm. due to inattention. Mm-hmm. You know, I would go to work and it would be dark and come home and it would be dark. And, you know, unless I went out there with a flashlight, I, I couldn't really observe to see what was going on. Yeah. 
And I think that's, that's, you know, a large part of what makes my garden successful is the fact that I'm in it all the time and I'm mm. noticing things and yeah. watching for things and observing what's working or what's not working. Right. And you grow a lot of food there, don't you? You know, I think I do. I think for the small, relatively small space that it is, I get enormous amounts of, of vegetables out of there, certainly enough for us and several of the neighbors, and I preserve and dehydrate tomatoes, and I love to cook with them, so mm-hmm. um, I put them up, and it's, it's a fun process, but there's really a bounty of stuff that comes out of there. Yeah, I've, I've noticed over the years, uh, actually about 25 years ago, I did a permaculture design course. Are you familiar with that? No. Permaculture, I like to call the art and science of working with nature. And what we do is we look at natural systems and how nature works. And I I have determined for myself that there's only one place on the planet that lack lives. Because when I look at nature, there is such an incredible bounty. And that place is in between our ears. (laughs) You know, because when I walk out to the garden, you're right. There is such an incredible amount of bounty out there we just have mm-hmm. to see mm-hmm. it yeah yeah so, it's amazing yeah so can you describe the design of your garden maybe how big it is and how you've laid sure. it out yeah the the garden that we built after i retired so a couple of years ago consists of raised beds and they're beds that are arranged in a u-shape mm-hmm. and there's a single raised bed in the center and a gate at one end of this space so the perimeter beds were all built with two two by twelve untreated boards mm-hmm. and the center bed is much higher it's probably two and a half feet high so taller boards and um, and what i've done is i've kept the bed width narrow and that's important, I think, yeah. because it allows me to reach all corners of the garden yep. when I, yeah, when I'm planting or weeding or, or harvesting, and I never have to step on the soil. Right. And so that preserves that really nice loamy structure that that is, I think, so important. Right. Without compacting it, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. how wide are your beds? The beds are uh, eighteen eighteen inches wide. Oh, so really skinny. I I coach people not to go more than three feet wide because <laughs> you know you can reach 18 inches and if you have access on both sides then you know there's your three feet so yeah yeah and I do have access on both sides mm-hmm. so so that does help but I'm I'm pretty small so you know probably have a shorter reach than some mm-hmm. people can you explain how this layout has helped maximize your yield yeah I think it's it's just because because I don't have to walk on that soil and because mm-hmm. it's it's just so mightily prolific for probably lots of reasons. But it's nice to work in there. I love that space. I love going into the garden. Mm-hmm. And so it's a friendly space. It's not, it's attractive. I think it's kind of cute. It's charming. And I enjoy being up there. So that's part of it. And I enjoy working in it. So I'm probably in there more than I would be if it wasn't such a nice space. Mm-hmm. And another thing that we did is we, last summer, each summer seems to get hotter down yeah. here and longer. And when we had sustained temperatures of over 90 degrees, my husband helped me to put up a shade cloth over the top. We erected four poles with a shade cloth, and that prevented uh, the tomatoes from getting sunburned and you know loss of produce and whatnot. But 
last summer that it was just like a little Southeast Asia when I'd walk in there because it was humid with the all the moisture from the plants and the, the moisture in the soil, and it was warm on, but not hot mm-hmm. underneath the shade cloud. So you'd walk in there, and it was just a little tropical paradise. And it just I just love being there, and I think the design of that space has made me a better gardener. Yeah. Plus, it has you want to spend more time in there. You bet. Yeah, absolutely. So harvesting, what do you grow and how big are your harvests in a little bit less than 200 square feet? Well, you know what? I plant in the summertime, I have lots of tomatoes Mm -hmm. and they're always heirlooms and I Mm -hmm. put them in heavy duty cages. So they're very well supported. I have several varieties of peppers, zucchini, uh, eggplant, lots of lettuces, although once it starts getting hot, the lettuces bolt pretty quickly. Kale and herbs. I've tried raising melons, not successfully. But as far as the amount that comes out, well, that's the summer garden. I'll tell you, my winter garden is cruciferous vegetables mainly. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of cabbage and cauliflower Kale, broccoli, Swiss. I went out there today and I took a couple pounds of Swiss chard to make some greens for dinner. And lots of gold beets and lettuces and arugula, that kind of thing. Nice. Do you use any any specific kind of plan for your garden? Did you have anybody that you learned from? Like there's this, you know, there's a square foot garden. Uh, Have you, did you learn from any of those or is this something you made up on your own? You know, years ago, I remember reading about the Victory Gardens oh, and yes. sort of how they how they were laid out, and and in sort of one of my my bigger inspirations for gardening was when I was taking a train trip through Europe with my mom mm. years ago, and there were these charming little patch gardens in front of houses, mm-hmm. and they would be loaded not just with vegetables but with flowers. Yeah. And so I, I've just always been really charmed by that whole idea. And so I've incorporated some of those same things into my space. Right. Yeah. You know, I've been to Europe a couple of times over the past decade. And w- once was in Croatia. I spent uh, three weeks in Croatia and once was in uh, Italy. And one of the things that I noticed in both trips is that everybody has a garden in their front yard. It's so great. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was so great. And so my 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 thought when we were designing this garden is, I wanted to be I wanted to be nice and make be have curbside appeal. I right. wanted to add to the beauty of the property and not detract to it, you know, detract from it anyway. Yeah. And so that process has been fun and kind of, I'll say, sissifying the garden, but but making it just really kind of fun and nice. Yeah, exactly. And and you obviously include flowers in your garden, yes. I do. Yeah. I do. Not always successfully. Um, <laughs> well, years go- ago, I, I planted mammoth Russian sunflowers mm. in my tomato bed. <laughs> and they were, I'll tell you, they were gorgeous. They had, they grew, but you know the name, mammoth Russian right. sunflowers. Yeah, I giggled when you said that in a 200 square <laughs> foot garden. Hello. What was I thinking? Yeah, This exactly. was even before I had that garden. These were uh, little other raised beds. But uh, at any rate, I was trying to grow tomatoes and I had these huge sunflowers that were gorgeous and and they were over six feet tall and they had seed heads bigger than dinner plates and the the stalk was bigger than my wrist so there was a whole row of these things competing with the tomatoes well they took the moisture they took the nutrition Mm. and the tomatoes didn't do well at all in that bed Mm. 
right. But my happens. flowers are beautiful. Yeah. So that was a, a bit of a learning process. Well, yeah, there it is. There it is. You know, yeah. flowers, though, are so incredibly important in our gardens, aren't they? I think so. Thoughts on yeah. why? Well, sweet alyssum um, is, is a good one. It, I know it attracts some of the beneficial insects. Uh, I know that marigolds are good, although I haven't honestly had much luck planting them as companion plants. Mm-hmm. Right now I have some hollyhocks growing out there, which I love because to me they remind me of my grandfather's garden back in New York State, you know, decades ago. Right. So I, I really enjoy okay. incorporating the flowers into the garden and also incorporating a few of my vegetable plants into my flower gardens, mm. which are out in front of the house. Right, exactly. When I found that once I let the flowers grow, things go to seed, planted extra flowers, I didn't have problems with things getting pollinated any longer. Oh. Right? Great. Yeah. So if you've ever gotten squash in your garden growing Mm -hmm. and the squash gets to be an inch or two long and then it, you know, basically curls up and dies. Yeah. It's because it wasn't fully pollinated. Oh, did not know that. Yeah. So I always let uh, flowers happen in my garden by the drove and, you know, and then Heidi loves flowers. So she gets flowers (laughs) and I get everything pollinated in the garden. So. Terrific. So can you grow all year round where you're at? I can. Yeah, and that's that's a huge benefit from about living in Southern California. Mm-hmm. I start my summer garden in April and put the winter garden in after the worst of the heat has passed mm-hmm. in late October. I used to think that early October was the right time to plant, but lately the season just goes on and on. It does, doesn't it? Month. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so the garden that I'm eating from now, I planted in late October, and by uh, middle of February, we had plenty of of all of the cruciferous vegetables. I'll tell you, some of those cabbages that I cut out of the garden were, I'm not joking, they were 12 inches in diameter. Yeah, Yeah. it's amazing how that... Just big, beautiful, And, and so as far as the volume of stuff coming out of my garden, I started keeping track last summer by the number of pounds of tomatoes I was uh, harvesting. And although that sounded like a good idea, it was, it was kind of quaint. And what happened is I, I, and I was not only keeping track of the number of the pounds of tomatoes, but by variety, which one was the biggest producer. Mm-hmm. So that required that every time I would pick tomatoes, I would have to come back to the kitchen, put them on the scale, weigh them, and then log their weights. Right. And, uh, <laughs> That was a little obsessive, and I lost track, honestly. I, I, it just got overwhelming to try to keep track of all that, so I, I don't know really what my tomato yield was. But Yeah, but, but I want to know, when you lost track, where were you at? Oh, you know, I'd have to look. I, I don't know off the top of my head. Yeah. Many pounds. Many, many, many pounds. Right, exactly, many pounds. That, that's yeah. the cool thing. You know, I had somebody in the nursery the other day, and they asked me, you know, off of one tomato, how many pounds of tomatoes would I get, and what would your answer to that be? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. I would say that in terms of sheer volume, it Mm -hmm. was the cherry tomatoes that just were amazingly prolific and had a very long growing season. So even though they were small, they just just produced like mad. There were literally thousands of tomatoes on that plant over the course of the summer. Yeah, so maybe 20 pounds? Think you get 20 pounds of tomatoes off of a tomato plant? 
you know, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, that's what I said. That's what I said to this uh, gentleman that asked me that. I was like, well, at least 20 pounds. And, Isn't that amazing? Yeah, and then the question is, what are you going to do with 20 pounds times, uh-oh, I just planted 15 tomato tr- plants, right? <laughs> <laughs> All of neighbors. A yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know you're in trouble when the neighbors don't answer the door and they shut their shades when you come. <laughs> you know you're bringing them. Yeah, especially happens with zucchinis. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly where I was going. I was going to say, that you, you know you're in trouble when you, you're growing zucchinis like that. <laughs> so. So is there something specific that you do to prepare your beds for planting? Do you add to the soil? I sure do. And I and I to me, I think that the soil the health of the soil is is the the backbone of the garden and provides um the best outcome. So what I do when we built the new garden, we put the beds, we filled the beds with a, a blend of 50% compost and 50% topsoil. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I added 20 pounds of red wigglers. Oh. And yeah. Oh, yeah. And the, nice. They, it's so cool. And they have multiplied like mad. So every time I'll go out and pull a weed or put a little plant in or remove a plant for, mm-hmm. for you know, if it's finished, I find worms all the time. They are so abundant in those gardens, mm-hmm. and I think they're fantastic. So uh, when I plant seedlings, I usually put in a few handfuls of worm castings, a little bit, maybe a teaspoon of volcanic rock dust, mm-hmm. and a few tablespoons of gypsum in the bottom of each hole. Right. And and I sort of mix that in with my my compost, and then I put the plants in the ground. And when everything is planted, then I do a really pretty thick layer of um, mulch on the top. Mm-hmm. It's it's a heavier compost. Right. If I sift the compost, I can use it in the in the holes. If I don't sift it, it stays down a little bit better, and I use it as a top dressing. Yeah. Wow. But when I what I've learned is that when I put down a real thick layer of nice mulch on the top, I only have to water even in the heat of our summers a couple of times a week. Week, yeah. yeah. Yeah, which is which is pretty fabulous. Yeah, no kidding. So and it gets hot there, yes? It gets real hot. Yeah. It gets, you know, it's in August or September, it's usually over 90 degrees. Mm-hmm. We're inland a little bit. We are not right on the coast. We're about <sighs> 12 miles from the ocean. Right. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I, I, I had to chuckle when you said really hot that, and then 90 degrees. Um, <laughs> oh, right. Because we're, we're <laughs> over in Phoenix, and, you know, I'll take 90 degrees any day when, you know, when it's 122 <laughs> degrees outside in Phoenix, oh. and this, you know, in August. Yeah, let's so. remember where you are. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So one of the uh, planting, I wanted to ask you, one of the planting tips that Kari Spencer from the Microfarm Project shared with me a while back was about putting crushed eggshells and a banana peel in the bottom of your tomato planting holes. Have you ever heard that? Mm-hmm. I've heard not of the banana, but I've heard of the crushed eggshells. And, yeah. and I know that calcium helps prevent the... Um, blossom end rot. Blossom end rot. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And then yeah. the, and the banana peels bring... Uh, bring potassium and uh, I think yeah and I think you she actually said phosphorus as well so I I am going to uh, we've been saving our I've got 15 really nice tomato plants sitting on the front porch right now in pots and and we've been saving our banana peels and our crushed eggshells 
Well, I will do the same thing. Yeah. I've I've been saving my crushed eggshells because I, I put them in. I do light dustings in the worm bin, and I add oh, them yeah. to the compost. Yep. Yeah, and I also soak. I, I'll put them in a quart jar with water and just let them leach a little bit, and mm-hmm. that's what I drizzle on the tomato plants as well. Oh yeah, see a couple of great tips there. Well, that's that helps me because I've I've lost. Not only tomatoes to blossom and rot, but mm-hmm. zucchini. Oh, interesting! Right? Yeah. I've never, I've never lost zucchini to that. Didn't know it could go there, uh-huh. but I guess that makes sense. Uh, yeah, yeah. Perfect. So, what about critters? Do you have a problem with critters, and if you do, how do you manage <laughs> them? <laughs> we have, we have a lot of critters. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. We have had everything from little larvae in the soil. We have uh, June bugs. I don't know if you guys have those. Those are the ones that oh, are like yes. little B-52s that buzz around. Yeah, big grubs in yeah. the soil. They are, yeah. They lay their eggs, and then four or five months later, these C-shaped white larvae appear. And I talked to a master gardener about them, and they said if there are a couple per cubic foot of soil, it's probably not going to hurt anything, right. but we had a real infestation. We had a, a bundle of these things, so we ended up, my husband helped me with this, we shoveled all of the dirt out of the garden, out of the beds, and sent it through a, a quarter inch, I guess it was not a quarter or a half inch uh, piece of hardware cloth, Oh, interesting. and we uh-huh. sorted out all of these larvae, and we counted, we counted 2,000. It was ridiculous that we were counting, but there were so many. Whoa! Yeah, 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 and they're gross. You know, they're just kind oh, yeah. of awful. I wish at the time that I had known somebody who was raising chickens because they would have, yeah, they would have loved those. Exactly. The chickens go nuts for them. That is for sure. <laughs> and since you done, since you did that, have you had a problem with them? I haven't. Yeah. Uh, but you know what? I would like to learn more about how to discourage the June bugs from coming in because. Uh-huh. There are a lot of them around, and I don't know that I can prevent this from occurring again. Yeah. You know, what, yeah. I've, what I've found is that when I build healthy soil, a healthy environment around that soil, and grow healthy plants, I have less of a problem with bugs. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, not, it's just not as impactful. So, you know, and it sounds like you're really doing that. You're really, you know, building a nice... A healthy environment around your garden. I suspect moving into the future, you're not going to have that big of an issue with them. I hope you're right. Yeah. I hope you're right. And but I do agree to the extent that I don't really have many little bug varmints in the garden. Mm-hmm. No, not a lot of flying insects. I think things are are pretty clean out there. Yeah. I do pretty much pick up all the leaf litter that comes off the plants, and I cut off the yellow leaves as they're growing, yep. particularly with the tomato plants. Oh, yeah. And that helps, I think, both to keep the air moving through the garden and mm-hmm. also, because it's pretty dense, the planting's in there, but also yeah. to keep the, the bugs from, just discourage that activity under the leaves on right. top of the soil. Yeah. And then you compost that, right? Not anything that is at all, looks like it might be diseasy, but certainly all the all the just yellow or healthy leaves, yeah. everything goes into the compost. Fantastic. You know, I love to use the term here a moment ago, bug varmints. I love that. <laughs> nice. So, so in addition to the grubs, which which really is just one thing, we have quite a problem with gophers here. Oh yeah. And one time, uh, this is before I had my new garden. I came out in the morning and 
and, and a gopher, I don't know, maybe an army of gophers had tunneled underneath the bed, came up through the middle, and, and I had these mature Brussels sprout plants and broccoli that were probably two and a half feet high, and they had yanked the plants through the holes and into the tunnels. Oh, my gosh. Uh-huh. And once they got into that garden, we couldn't keep them out because yeah. they knew that they had a paradise. Yeah, no kidding. So what did you do? Yeah. Well, when we built the new beds, we put a half-inch gopher screen or hardware cloth, I think they call it, under the entire bed. So it's under the growing areas Mm -hmm. as well as the walkways. Right. So we haven't had, we can see where they're trying to come in very regularly. They'll tunnel under and they'll push their little noses up against the screen Mm -hmm. and knock the stones through in the walkways so I can see these tunnels. Ah. So they're trying desperately to get in, but so oh, yeah. far we have not had a breach. That was that was a big victory. That yeah, that's a great solution for you. Yeah, that's a great yeah, that solution. helped a lot. And we have a, a so the the boards around the base of the raised bed are mm-hmm. about a foot tall, and then on top of that we have two feet of lattice, and just the virtue of the height keeps the the bunnies out. They oh, don't right. the rabbits don't get into the garden. Yeah. But we had to line the inside of the lattice with um, chicken wire because we were rats were climbing right through the holes in the lattice. Oh my gosh! <laughs> They're pretty small, so so yeah. rats could just walk right through there. So we lined the inside of the lattice with this chicken wire, and thought we were doing pretty well until <laughs> last fall uh-huh. I lost eleven out of twelve of my baby broccoli plants one night. Uh-huh. And so I don't know if it was a rat or a squirrel, because we have both. I don't know what scaled the fence, but it got in there and, and had a feast. Mm-hmm. So uh, since then, my husband has put a, they we've made it electric at the top of the fence. So uh, kind of like a livestock fence. Yep. It's got a ground wire and a hot wire, and it mm-hmm. runs around the perimeter of the garden. And if anything tries to climb up over the top and contacts both of those wires at the same time, they get a they get a zap and they yeah. fall back and it's not lethal nobody's dying up there, but it does keep them out. Yeah. And it's that has helped us pretty much take care of all the critter stuff. Yeah. Well, cool. I love it how you said nobody has died. Nobody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, obviously, your your critter protection is working. What hasn't worked on your farm? Hmm. You know, there's several things, but. Last summer, I tried to do something because I'm I'm working in this small space. So uh-huh. I thought, oh, well, I want to have melons, mm. and I so I I tried growing watermelons and cantaloupes, but I wanted to grow them upright. Well, so I thought what I would do is, as they started to grow, I was training them to climb up these trellises, and I was tying the limbs and the branches, and they they fought me every inch of the way. They didn't want to go upright, but they mm-hmm. did because I forced them. And then when they started producing these little baby melons, I thought, well, the way I can get around the weight of the melon is I'll, I'll use pantyhose right. underneath to, to make these little slings. And I had these adorable little little cantaloupes and watermelons hanging from the vine, and they were supported by little slings in the garden. Mm-hmm. And it was really kind of cute. But you know what? They never really matured. And they, I, I guess what I learned is that melons don't like to climb. Hmm. At least mine didn't. Yeah. So, you know, you, so that was sort of an effort in futility. Yeah, you, you mentioned melons earlier, and I, I love watermelons. Watermelons are one of my three or four favorite foods, and I, for the life of me, can't figure out how to grow them. 
Okay, maybe it's a southern thing. Uh, maybe so. I have tried and tried and tried and just I'm and I'm going to try again this year. 42 years into growing food, I'm going to try again and Yeah. We'll see. Well, you'll have to let everybody know if you find out the secret. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Got any new projects you're working on? Yeah. Yeah, I'm doing some doing some fun stuff. I am taking a what they call a master composting course. Oh. I'm going to get my certificate in master composting, and this is a class that's sponsored by the County of San Diego, mm-hmm. and it it's to encourage you know people like myself to to compost and to mm-hmm. worm farm, and it's been interesting because we're doing some work right now with you know general composting, kind of classical composting, but they're also going to be teaching us some of the Bokashi methods. Oh, nice. And yeah, which I know nothing about. Uh-huh. So it'll be fun to learn on that. And we'll we'll do some study on vermiculture as well. So anyway, that's a six-week class. So that's going to be fun. And probably the thing I'm, I'm most excited about right now is that for the first time, I'm going to try to graft tomatoes. And oh. uh, I've been studying on this. And <clears throat> in theory, it should work. But we'll see how successful I am. I've got some seedlings started. I've got some Maxi Fort. It's a generative, no, I think it's a vegetative rootstock. Yep. Which is, the whole idea here is that we have viruses in the soil uh-huh. in Southern California. I don't know if you guys have this trouble, we but do. it's called, do you? Yep. Tobacco mosaic virus. Yep. And even in, even in the nicest soil, sometimes they'll come with the tomato plants. And we end up with these viruses in the soil. And... My hope is that by grafting the delicious heirloom, which has almost no disease resistance, right. to the very robust and vigorous rootstock, I'm going to be able to improve the yields on the heirloom. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So they've started, but it'll it'll yeah. be, you know, seven or eight weeks probably before I know whether I've got successful grafted seedlings to put in the ground. Yeah. How cool is that? You know, I know. I, you know, I know there's companies out there doing it, uh, you know, grafting tomatoes, but I didn't even stop to think that, well, we might be able to do this right at home. <laughs> I just think it sounds fun, yeah. you know, you know, so, so yeah, it's, it appeals to my, my engineering side to want to do something like that. Right. The gardening nerd in you. You can say that. Yeah, I'm a gardening. gardening. Yeah. Exactly. I'm a gardening nerd too, so. <laughs> All right, well, I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it. Well, the whole episode with the mammoth Russian sunflowers was uh, one of them. Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, the other thing, a couple of years ago, we had someone, my sister's boyfriend was staying at the house while we were traveling, and it was a summertime thing, and he took it upon himself to do something really nice and he put in a tomato garden in the backyard. Oh. Yeah. So in an area that I hadn't really prepared yet, but he he amended the soil and he put in a, a bunch of tomato plants. Well, they're in an area that gets full western exposure. Mm. So they, they get just hot, hot, hot in the afternoon. Yeah. And they were right up against a uh, cement block wall. Block wall. So they had all the reflected energy as well as the the ambient heat energy and those tomatoes just fried 
and I would go down there to even pick what did produce, which wasn't much, and they would be so hot I almost couldn't touch them. Yeah, yeah. yeah taking, so. taking into consideration microclimates uh, like that is really, really important when you uh, uh, when you put your garden in. Uh-huh. Yeah. In fact, I, yeah, I, absolutely. I say that in, in, in my jumpstart your spring garden class that I give, that's the number one thing is to, you know, know your microclimates, figure out what, what you're dealing with before you put those in. Yeah. So. No, I, I think that's absolutely right. And, and I think it's, it's quite possible or probable even to make mistakes along the way you live and learn what won't work in an area. Yeah. But that is the same space that I'm thinking about putting in a backyard orchard. Ah, Ah, so... (laughs) That could work really well. It might, it might. After I listened to the the podcast, the Urban Farm podcast on having an orchard in your backyard, it, it just occurred to me that this space actually could work because I thought, well, you whitewash your trunks, but if you guys in Phoenix can grow stone fruit i certainly should be able to do it in san diego oh absolutely you're the reason i asked you if you could grow all year round there was because we have similar similar climates mm-hmm. we do have similar climates and my friend scott murray who runs edge of urban farm in vista he grows all year oh. round there as well so that's got to yeah. be that's got to be somewhat close to you not far yeah yeah so anyway it's going to be exciting i think the other thing that I learned from that podcast that was was really um, critical in, in my making a decision to go forward with this idea uh-huh. is that you could keep the trees small enough mm. to actually put more than just a couple in this space. Yep. And in that, that appealed to me greatly, the thought of actually having a little orchard and being able to reach the fruit and harvest the fruit yeah. and manage the the birds or whatever else uh it all clicked you know it all sounds like now it could be doable so right. i'm kind of really excited about that nice nice yeah. so what do you consider your biggest success mm, my biggest success is probably in the design of the vegetable garden because mm. because of everything that we talked about with regard to how that garden is and how it appeals to me that that it has become so functional yeah and so I, I think that's that's what was probably the biggest success for me, farming. Yeah. Functional and productive. Yeah. Yeah. What drives you? Why do you do what you do? You know, I love to learn. So in, in each year, I like to do something a little bit more or better. And now that I'm retired, it makes all of that easy. There's time on my hands. I, I have opportunities to learn more. I volunteer at the local water conservation garden and and I've, I'm learning about composting there, but about, you know, plants in general and what works in our native plants and learning more about the soil. So I, I think probably that curiosity. I'm, I'm just pretty curious by nature. So I think I think that satisfies lots of lots of needs when I'm in the garden. Nice. OK, I I also I think that because I enjoy eating so much and I'm, <laughs> because I am such a foodie and I love to cook, uh-huh. it just goes hand in hand with that whole concept of food to, you know, farm to fork and, and feeding not just yourself, but your neighbors. That's, that's so, so satisfying. Yeah. And one of the, my, like by far favorite summertime meal is when you can pick one of those heirloom tomatoes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
and it's ripe and juicy and warm. And you slice that up, and I make homemade artisan bread. So oh. if you make a loaf of that, which is super easy, mm-hmm. and I also make fresh mozzarella, and so you put this all together with basil from the garden, mm-hmm. and you layer this all up, and you drizzle it with balsamic vinegar. It's, it's like what's the, the what could be possibly any better than that for yeah. a summertime meal? Yeah. So, so, so I'm driven by I think partly by how much I love food. Yeah. I can completely get that. I noticed in your bio, and I forgot to ask this earlier, mm-hmm. your f- farm name is Honey Hill Farm. Hmm. I want to know, <laughs> why did you decide to name your farm? Well, my sister named it for me. Uh-huh. And actually, you know, that came about recently when we we have a dog, and her name is Honey, mm. and she is, we don't have children, so we have this dog, and so it's a four-legged for a child, which, right. you know, she's, she's with us everywhere. And she kind of, she kind of rules the roost here, both in the house and out the house and in the garden. And, uh, so that just works. We live at the top of a hill, at the very top of a uh, hill. So Honey Hill Farm just works. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. So I'm all about education. I have to know, is there a book that has been influential for you in this process in your life? Well, I think probably the most influential book is the one that I'm reading right now, and that is The Omnivore's Dilemma. Mm-hmm. It, it starts out pretty bleakly because it, it gives a, a background into how we got where we are right now with the obesity problem in the United States mm-hmm. and uh, the pollution and all the pesticides that are running down the rivers and out into the ocean and all these monocultures with these growing these corn plants in the Midwest to the exclusion of everything else and what that's really done to the soils. And, and the depletion, and it's it's scary and it's astounding. But the book is also uplifting because it moves from that to what is possible when we take care of the soils, and and what happens when we when we compost or when we mm-hmm. put down mm-hmm. layers of micronutrients. You know, when we when we put the rock dust back into the soil, all those things that help to to build it back up, and then. You know, the root systems that form underneath are so critical in the grasses right. and it's it's a it's an amazing thing. And I think I think this um this author Michael Michael Pollan does a, a really wonderful job of explaining yeah. the criticality of, of all those interactions. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Well, especially if you live in an area like I do with lots of lots of critters that can sabotage your efforts, I would just say that it's pretty important to to make your garden critter proof and not to wake up and come out and find <laughs> all your hard work is literally pulled yeah. down a hole. But I that's really what's made me so much more successful is just mm-hmm. being able to protect my plants. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your experience with us today, Nancy. It has been a treat getting to chat with you. Great. Well, it's been a pleasure for me, too. It's, it's fun. So thank yeah. you. Yeah, you did great. So oh my. how can our listeners get a hold of you? They could uh, contact me by email. And my email address is the number 4, mm-hmm. Nancy Bailey, N-A-N-C-Y-B-A-I-L-E-Y at gmail.com. Perfect. You can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org backslash honeyhill, 
Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Thank you. Do you want to save money at the grocery store, eat more organic, whole foods, cultivate food security, and feel more connected to the earth? If so, then growing your own food is a no-brainer. You wouldn't believe how many people come to me claiming that they can't grow their own food. They think they don't have enough space, that they're too busy, or that they simply don't have what it takes. Perhaps you've fallen for one of these gardening myths. If you think you can't grow food, or if you think the only food that you have access to is what you buy in the grocery store, I have a life-changing webinar that you need to see. It's free and will help you unearth your inner gardener. I've helped thousands of people just like you learn to grow their own food, and I'm speaking from my own experience when I say that with the right knowledge in place, there is no such thing as a black thumb. With this webinar, you can begin making your garden dreams come true and start growing delicious, nutritious food for your family. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to IWantToGarden.com and you will receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. Remember, that's GARDEN to 44222 or IWantToGarden.com. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.